Wealth is more about knowledge, about wisdom, about relationships, because that's the thing that will pass on. You're good. Why are you telling me you're good, Dave? I should kill you now. Puts a gun to my head. And they were like, haven't you heard? Andrew's dead. It's difficult to articulate how hollow that moment felt. And I went from earning really, really good six-figure money to nothing. So not only have I lost my business, I can't pay my mortgage, so I've got to sell my house. And then my wife and I, we, we miscarry and we lose our second child. Descending from parents of the Caribbean, Barbados and Grenada, this guest grew up in the era of bright clothing, shell suits, Nintendo and Sega. I got to go to TED, so I'm actually a TED fellow. I share a stage with people who are earning 120, pounds £150,000 a speech. For the pure transparency of this podcast, my fee is between seven and a half to £10,000 for an hour. I'm not charging you for the hour, I'm charging you for 54 years worth of experience. It's not about the money for me, it's about knowing what the impact is. Don't get me wrong, I'd rather cry in a Mercedes than a Nissan Micro. Let's keep it 100%, <laughs> alright? <laughs> the biggest thing I've learned in personal development is that Greetings, I'm Ashley Samuels McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became. Where we unveil the unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. Hi, my name is David McQueen, and this is How I Became the CEO and Big Cheese of Q Squared Limited. If you enjoy the show, could you do one thing? Subscribe. Wherever you are, just click the subscribe or follow button. That simple act can help us grow the podcast in a big way, and we need your support to do it. And if you really want to help play a part in our growth, rate us on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world. Thank you. Descending from parents of the Caribbean, Barbados and Grenada, this guest grew up in the era of bright clothing, shell suits, Nintendo and Sega. With a want to be part of the culture, he set up a sweet shop, the key to getting his fresh new clothing, to learning some key life lessons early, and to take trips to keep a censure of adventure flowing. A career path filled with twists and turns, similar to a roller coaster. To now position to coach senior leadership, teaching top leadership what new skills they need to bolster. So for the next few hours, he'll tell his story, whether you're listening or watching us on the screen. Introducing Chief Executive Officer of Q Squared, David McQueen. <laughs> I love that. Welcome. I love that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. There love we that. go. Love that. That's your life in a poem. Love it, love it. Love it. Now we explore the journey to become founder and CEO of Q Squared. Before we get started, mm -hmm. for anybody who doesn't know, what is Q Squared? Give us an intro to that. So Q Squared is best defined as a leadership development company. Mm -hmm. um, work primarily with large organizations in the private and public sector and helping senior executives or people who, who aspire to be senior to kind of just make really good decisions and be good leaders in their company. So I go in and I speak and I coach and I consult about how they can run better businesses. Awesome. Beautifully put. Well, let's dive into the story mm. and go back where it all began. Okay. Where does it begin? St. Mary's Hospital, I believe. Oh, yes. Yeah, same hospital as Prince Harry and William, but I'm better looking. Ah, um, but yes, yeah, definitely came from the same hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So born in Paddington, uh, April 1969. Uh, and my parents, my parents came in from the Caribbean, from Barbados and Grenada. And um, yeah, I was, I'm, I, I felt, I feel very blessed 
to have the parents that I have and the people that are around me and the community that I have around me that has helped to shape who I am, who I am today. If you want me to go back, you let me know, but you just, you just drive it, yeah. <laughs> so your first formative years, yes. you grew up in Halsden. Yes. How was that environment for you and what kind of life lessons did it show you early? It's only when I left Halsden that I realized some of the challenges that came from there. But I, you know, I'm up until the age of 10, I was just quite innocent and I never really had any sense of what that wider world looked like. I, I was very fortunate in that I was quite immersed in a lot of cultures but primarily there were two strong cultures that really influenced me. So on the one hand, I had the Caribbean culture, and on the other hand, I had a really strong connection with the Irish culture as well in Halsden. And there was a, a kind of like, there was a connection that we had that was, I don't know, that's not for me, by the way. I just think everybody knows that's just not for me. I'm good, I'm a good citizen. Um, but there was a strong connection that we had and, and a sense of community, even like the way we we, we were quite religious, the way we celebrated death and life. Um, our, both of our reluctance to the English society, which treated us as kind of like a second class citizens. But it was good. I, as I said, I, I lived in Stonebridge, really enjoyed it. Um, every now and then I tried to be a little bit of a bad boy, um, but the bad boys wouldn't let me be a bad boy. Mm. I actually remember, I, I, it, it's a story that always sticks in my mind. I remember there was in, in Stonebridge opposite the primary school on the, on the main road, there's a little youth centre. And I used to go down to that youth center when I was allowed to, and I used to bring my books with me. So you go there and you do your little whatever, but I still have my books. And so every now and then I kind of like get bored of the games and I'd be reading like a little book, a little adventure book or a little history book. And and they used to call me bookworm. And and even when I kind of like got a bit older and I tried to be a little bit of bad boy in school, they'd be like, no, arrest yourself, bookworm. That's not for you. That's That's not what it's about. Mm. And so I was quite protected in that I had some really good people around me who had my best interests at heart. Mm. And um, they knew my curiosity. They knew that I love to be able to look at the world through a different lens. Um, and yeah, it really shaped having those individuals around and really shaped my kind of worldview as it stands now. I'm continuously curious. I don't think I'll ever grow up. I'm always learning. Um, and I have a deep sense and passion for people around me. And I like them to have that same kind of feeling for me back. That makes sense. So then from here, you move to Harrow's? Yes, to Harrow. Subbury Hill in Harrow. Yeah. So my parents, they got a house. They still live in that house, actually. Um, and we were, li so we were living in a tower block. It was a, actually, it was the tallest block in Stonebridge before they took it down. It's called Haskell House. We used to live on the 18th floor, um, which might sound really nice, but when the lift is broken <laughs> and you've got to walk 14 floors. With the shopping. Uh, with the shopping. <laughs> or when you want to go to toilet and you realize there is nowhere to go to toilet. So you do go to the toilet, but it's on the way up. You, I'll let your imagination run with that. <laughs> Um, and again, for me, it was quite innocent. Do you know what I mean? I, I thought when you do go home, you are supposed to smell weed or you are supposed to smell <laughs> being in the stairwell. That's just normal life. Um, and then my parents, we moved out and it was really interesting because Stonebridge and Harlesden were, you know, it was quite densely populated mm. and it had its level of trouble and what have you. And then we moved to Sudbury Hill and all I'm seeing is like fields. Like I come out my house massive field and and a little forest and then you go around the corner and there's a private road a toll road mm. with these huge houses and but you're still walking through fields and, and I literally remember I would just go I just walk just absolutely walk and there was a real sense of freedom that I didn't realize until I got to Harrow that allowed that I feel when I'm in nature mm. um when I'm in when I'm out walking in the 
or roaming in the in the country or out in the open I get a real sense of connection and there was something about moving to Harrow that reestablished or 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 reintroduced me to that but now it's a core part of who I am I have to be I couldn't live in London. I just couldn't anymore. And I've spent most of my life moving further and further out. Mm-hmm. Just couldn't live in it because it's just too condensed for me. I need to be in a spaces where there is just lots of trees and fields and greens and what have you. And so that's what, yeah, that's what Harrow went to. Actually, I'll share something. I'll share something with you. Um, it also helped me with my identity as well. It's quite, because I've, I've always had a really cutting sense of humor. I'm like, I'm not going to fight you. I'm just going to cuss you, your mum, your dad, your grandma and your ancestors. That's what I'm going for, right? <laughs> I'm just going. I'm just going to go in, um, but that wicked sense of humour became because I it was a almost like a survival. So again, I tell you about bookworm, and a lot of my friends they used to go. You know, you always have these bookworms, and you sound so posh. You know, you're like a bounty. And I'm like, what do you mean, like bounty? And they're like, yeah, you're brown on the outside, but you're white on the inside, and you got all these posh words. And I was like, didn't even realise what that meant. I was like, yeah, your mum's a bounty, uh, and then. Um, <laughs> and then run all right and then and then i came to harrow and i was one of a minority of black students and they called me bourneville and i was like well bourneville go yeah you're dark chocolate all right? right so i so i actually created a name for myself i called myself the chocolate boy wonder right <laughs> and found out a hip-hop artist used it slightly later as well but i realized that in that time i could either get really upset or peed off with individuals who were and i didn't even really really know it knew, knew it acknowledging at the time who sometimes could be quite offensive but what I realized is that my shield or my way of navigating that was always going to be with humor mm. that makes sense and then in school mm-hmm. you were somewhat the hustler yes seeing seeing some of the the current threads that everyone was wearing mm. you negotiated with a teacher mm-hmm. to allow you uh, your first entrepreneurial journey in school yeah. Talk to us a little bit about that. Okay, so let me talk about what happened before I negotiated because I think that's important. Let me give you the full story. <laughs> um, I In school, I was a snitch. I made no bones about it. Um, and I had olders that like, if you mess with me, I'll snitch on you. I'll get, if it gets me out of trouble, <laughs> I'll snitch on you because I've got olders who can look after me, so I'm not even worried. <laughs> and what had happened was um, I was in what would be the equivalent of year nine now. Mm. And we couldn't go out. I don't know if it's the same when you guys grew up, but you couldn't go out at school unless you had like a, you could have home lunch. You couldn't go out. Yeah. You just, can't leave. You, school, you no. couldn't leave, right? Um, but you got hungry still. Mm. And and back in the day, like the the, lim- the food that they had was quite limited. Mm-hmm. And um, I remember speaking to the shopkeeper one day and, and I said, um, I've got an idea. I said, I, I'd like to either buy a bulk or get some sweets and chocolates and stuff from you because a lot of us who are in younger years, we can't go out and they have to wait till the end of school. I said, if I buy some for you, then you'll get the kids who are coming at the beginning of school. I'll sell some more food to them in the middle of school and then they'll still come to you at the end of school so you get three hits in a day or three visits in a day. And he was like, you're a clever little man, sir, clever little man. And I said, do I have to pay up front or what have you? Uh, uh, and um, you know what do you need to do my trust so he said to me he said well you know in order to get my trust there are I know there are younger students who are stealing from the store so tell me who's stealing from the store so I'm like I got a hustle bro right so I don't care you little seven you little year seven and eight you little rats you shouldn't be stealing the cream eggs so I'd be like yeah they're stealing and I would I would snitch them up I didn't do it with year 11s I wasn't getting my head kicked in right? but with the younger ones I snitch I felt very I still to this day I still feel really proud of that I snitched them all right and he was like, you know, I actually really trust you. He goes, you won't even have to pay for these. 
He said, you go in, but all I need you to do is I need you to come back. And what you do is you, you can, you can take the product and then what you can do is you can sell it at your price, but you keep the extra bit you sold, but you give me back the money. Mm. And so I remember, you know, he gave me probably at the time way back, going way back when he probably gave me about 15 quid's worth of stock. That's a, that's a lot. In it the, was a lot in back the, in the day. Yeah. Like, cause we're, I'm talking, for those who don't know, I'm 54 for those, well, I told you I'm born in 69. So like, we still had half pences and two pences <laughs> them day, right? You could buy half pence sweets. So that was still a lot. That was like a, a lot of money. But I made my upsell from that. So then obviously he trusted me more. I didn't have to snitch anybody anymore. He just trusted me more. And I, you know, I was able to go and sell products. Uh, and then, but what it was is I was taking it in a bag and selling it and what have you. And then, um, and I was always a good student. And then one day I was in, I remember this clearly, I was, <laughs> I was in my religious studies um, lesson. And my, fav my favorite teacher at the time, Mr. O'Brien, he said, Dave, he said, I think Mr. Beaumont wants you. I said, well, yeah, I think, I think he wants it in the office. I'm like, okay, what does he want? Am I in trouble? He said, I have no idea. He just said to me, he knew, I, he knew I was in his lesson, can I go? So I rock up to the office and he says, um, how are you, Mr. McQueen? And like, when a teacher calls me by my full name, like, I'm like, am I in trouble here? Like, like, what's going on? And he goes, I said, I'm fine, sir. He said, okay, I'm gonna get straight to the point. I've heard you've been selling. Now, obviously, like where I'm from, the word selling means something <laughs> totally different, right? <laughs> and obviously he didn't know. I was like, sir, what, what do you mean selling? I, I don't do anything. He said, and, and I think he clocked. He said, no, no I heard you've been selling food and drink on the premises. I said, well, what it is, sir, I get some supplies to do some sweets and it's just something slightly differently, you know, and I, and it's not a lot of money. I was lying, obviously. It's not a lot of money, but I just get, it's just options. It's just variety. And he said to me, well, we've got a tuck shop here in the school already. I said, well, let me break it down to you, sir. Here's why I'm doing it. I said, I've got a pair of flares on and I, I have no idea if you, the generation of this really know what flares are, but back yeah, in the yeah. day, right? So you all know what flares are, right? Mm -hmm. But my flares, obviously I was growing. So my flares were higher than my trousers. And it was like about an inch between my flares and my actual trousers. And my parents are like, anything that, if any time I get taller, they would just take the hem down. <laughs> I ran out of hem, bruv, right? So I just had these, <laughs> these ankle swingers. And so my friends used to cuss me. They used to call me Noah. Cause they used to say that my trousers were swinging above my ankles that I was preparing for the floods. Right? <laughs> so <laughs> my, my, name, my nickname was Noah. I'll be playing football. I'm on the wing. They go, Noah, over here. I'm like, I swear to God, I will take you out. All right. So no, but you know, it's banner or what have you. Yeah. And and again, like I had the peer of trainers. Like I think my my parents, they obviously they didn't have a lot of money. And like all my friends would be wearing Adidas and uh, well, it wasn't Nike at the time. It was Adidas from Fila with the, the top and Puma. And my parents would go to like Shoe Zone or Curtis. And my mum would come back with these pair of trainers and they got four stripes on there. Oh, like, no. mum, they are not Adidas. They call me Adidas Four Stripe. That was my <laughs> name. Noah and Adidas Four Stripes were the names that I had. I was like, you lot are just, and obviously I had words. I'm not gonna tell you the names I call people when I'm here, right? I had bad names for them. But I thought, you know what? I'm gonna try and do something different so I don't put the pressure on my mum and dad and I can just go and get, I wanted a pair of black and gold Adidas Gazelles. Mm. And I wanted it was a, a Fila tracksuit and a Puma tracksuit and a, a Sergio Ticini tracksuit. Those are the three, four things I wanted. So anyway, I said to this, I said, so all it is, I'm just trying to get a little bit of um, some clothes. That's what I was trying to do. I just want to, didn't want to put any, my parents under pressure. I was like, please don't tell my parents as well because they, they'll cuss me out. So anyway, he goes, I'm going to do a deal. He goes, I want you to go in um, and I, uh, I'm going to give you a month and you can go and sell, but you're not allowed to sell to the upper school. Mm. You have to only do the tuck shop on a, we had a desk and on a bench in the lower school. 
And so I would come in, you know, they're massive sports bags. Yeah. I would come in, and again, I'd have a couple of the olders. I'd give them a little bit of money, a pound note back in the day or whatever, and they would protect me mm. to bring the food in anyway. Okay. Right, so if I brought the food in, I'd be walking with some of the elders and like people looking at it. Yeah, because that's my tux. I'm not walking up there to get mugged on the way to school. No, you can't. Yeah, right? yeah, be a scramble before school. I mean, to be fair, it was to be fair, if somebody did try and mug me, they would have to deal because I, I knew like my older brothers and cousins, my older brother and their friends, they knew all the elders. So I would walk in with them and then I'd just give them a couple, like a pound note and a Mars bar and a, and they're fine. Mm. That's your security. Hundred percent. Yeah. I had to learn it from them, man. Mm. <laughs> And um, so it allowed me to do it anyway. And as I said, the trust, I, I still to this day, I'm like, that shopkeeper was so trusting because he gave me this big bag knowing that he would obviously get the money and me put my little margin on it. So anyway, they gave me the opportunity for a month. And what I realized as well was I could upsell. I'm proper upselling. Four grand in the month. Four wow. grand. That was Back your money or? Four grand was a total sale. Total sale. That's total a Total sales, four grand. Still. Back in the day. In one month. In a whole, in one month. But it's because I upselled. Yeah, mm. but what it taught me, I could have handled being called Noah for a whole another year or what have you, but I just wanted a different solution out of it. Mm. So I learned to be innovative. I learned about the importance. I, I say trust is my superpower. So I'm a coach now. I've been a youth worker. I'm a trained counselor. And the one thing my wife says to me, she goes, "I really hope one day no one actually injects truth serum into you." She said because you're carrying so many bloody secrets that people have told you so much stuff. And for me, I realize when someone tells me something. When there is something that's really, like I, like I think about a lot of people who I see online who will give it all the large, yeah, my business, I'm doing good and I'm turning over, blah, 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 I'm up for this award. And I'm looking, I'm like, no, you're not, bruv. <laughs> I know you're struggling to make payroll. Mm. I know that it's a challenging environment. Be honest about it. And I've had people kind of like confess and I go, okay, here's how I can show you how you can switch it up. Mm. I can show you as a business coach how you'll do it. Reduce your expenditure. Stop having such a wide product line. Reduce it down to two or three income streams. Do this. Stop flossing on social media. It's going to take you 10 years till you get to this point. This is how you work it. Hmm. And for me, for somebody to come and say that to me, they'll only be able to say that to me if they trust me. And yeah. trust for me is an incredible superpower. Hmm. And I learned it back then that there were some elders who really looked out to me. And I, I mentioned Mr. O'Brien, my religious studies teacher, who did that. Mr. O'Brien, I found out many years afterwards, I had one incident in school, one bad incident, where a, a young lady was winding me up uh, in uh, in the dinner in the dinner hall, I she was pushing me, pushing me, and I turned around to push her back, and I didn't look, and I just turned, and I pushed, and it was a dinner lady behind me, and I pushed her, and she fell over a table, and I got on really well with the dinner ladies, but they were pissed that day, and they were just thinking, well, what's happened here, and I got suspended from school, hmm. and I was in tears. I actually, to be fair, to be fair. I was more scared of my parents than I was of the teachers. I was like, you can spend me all my life. My dad and my mom are going to cuss me. I'm born in Britain, but they will send me to another country anyway just to, say, <laughs> to fix up and get out of it. But Mr. O'Brien, I met him when I was, I'm going to say I probably was in my early 40s. And I was on Twitter and I was running my mouth about something. And I get this message from this guy who goes, oh, um, you remind me of a student I had in school. He's a really clever student, um, prefect. Was um, uh, he was in the 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 band, did drama, did all the sports. He said, "You just remind me of that." And he was always outspoken and never held his tongue. And I said, "Okay." I said, um, "Yeah, that's cool." I said, uh, "And I saw a professor." I said, "Oh, oh, were were you a teacher?" He said, "I was once upon a time." I said, oh, "I went to school in Harrow. Did you teach in Harrow?" He said, "Yeah, the same school as you." I was like, "What?" <laughs> He found me online, like wow. basically the best part of 
like 20 years later or 20 plus years later online. Uh, and then he told me what had happened. When I'd been suspended from school, there were a couple of teachers because I was a bit of a mouthy dude. I'm, I'm always, I love to have a debate, but I'm not going to debate with you if, unless I've got my facts lined up. Because anybody can debate opinions, but opinions can be knocked out. If we're going to debate facts, I'm going toe to toe with you. And it got me in trouble because obviously you're a mouthy kid. You come and challenge me. I'm your teacher. I tell you what to do. When that incident happened, there were two, maybe three teachers that wanted to get rid of me. They wanted me to be expelled. And there is a history, especially in London, of disproportionate expulsions of young black boys from schools in comparison to other racial groups. And again, Mr. O'Brien, Irish guy, and I think there was that affinity, liked we, we had a really good connection. And I remember sitting down with him, we were in the Hilton Hotel in Watford, and he told me that. He said, Dave, I, I'm just so, he said, I knew you were gonna do well, I knew you were gonna do some stuff. He said, you know, it just reminded me when they tried to expel you from school. I said, what do you mean they tried to expel me from school? I knew it was suspended. And then he told me the story, I swear to God, I just cried, wow. I just cried. I just said, I, re I, said, I thank you, because it could have gone very, very differently. Mm. Could have gone so differently but he stood in that gap for me. We actually ended up doing a couple of gigs together uh, as well, uh, which was really nice. But for me, it's taught me as an individual, sometimes, whether you're young or you're old, all it needs is one person to go, I see you. Mm -hmm. I, I, I really see where you're going and it may not be perfect and it may be a bit of a challenge, but I see you, you're smart. I'm gonna give you the, your three strikes to prove to me that you are worthy of it and have somebody stand in there for you and, and do and do that for me. And so for me, I never had, apart from that one incident, I have no bad memories of schools. Mm. No bad, I love school. I, Cause I, I hung out with all the, I hung out with the, the cool kids. I hung out with the sports kids. I hung out with the goths. <laughs> I hung out with the rockers. I hung out with the hip hop heads. I hung out with everybody. Cause I just didn't want to stay attached to one specific group. And so I always had a really good experience. Never, never was never bullied, never, you know, and so to know that I also had that plus those adults who looked out for me, it really shaped how I've seen the world ever since then. I know I've blathered on a bit, but that's kind of oh, wanted yeah. to kind of, that, that's the context for the story of where, mm. uh, of where I've come from. So it's 1985. Yes. Got your Adidas now. You're no longer four stripes. You're on the yep. three. Yep. <laughs> Legit. <laughs> Proper. You got your bike. You got your BMX. You're cruising around town. Yeah. Cool guy. Going around. You go down a hill. What happens next? So firstly, I didn't realize that we only had a back brake. Okay. And Raj, it was Raj's BMX. I remember it as well, it was a yellow Kuwahara. And I think I'd just finished my exams and we're riding down this hill and, and power on the hill were towards the bottom of Sudbury Hill, it was very, very steep. Mm. And we're coming around the hill, coming down the hill and I'm squeezing the brakes and I'm not feeling anything. Oh. And I can't turn the corner fast enough bike goes right across the road so you just fly straight across the road and i get smacked and by the way i i, I laugh about this day in retrospect but i got hit by a mercedes-benz so i was like i had to go out in style do you know what i mean i had to get, to get hit um but it i broke my thumb uh, i broke my leg i can still feel i don't know which one it is now because i can still feel is this one here is this one it's definitely this one i can still yeah i can still feel right here where the, it snapped um but obviously I was knocked out, I had a big, what I call a cocoa bean, so I had a big bruise here at the side. Um, and yeah, it could have ended there, could have ended. And the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital and seeing my mum standing over me and crying. 
And she didn't like me riding bikes anyway because she just thought I was a bit of a nutter. Um, and it wasn't Raj's fault. It was just that we shouldn't have been riding pillion with a 40 bike. But when you're, like, when you're 15, 16, you don't care. You live life to the edge, right? You're being risky. You do stuff. Um, so he was on the yeah, back? Of he was on the back. Right. But he got off lightly. He got bruises and stuff like that. Mine, I, mine, I got the full brunt of the car. Mm. And it, um, yeah, it, um, I was in hospital for probably about two or three weeks. But I recovered. Um, and I'm always... I'm always curious as to why I survived that. And I, I do believe, I have, a, I have a strong, I'm not a religious, but I grew up religious. I grew up, my parents, my family, they're still Seventh-day Adventists, they're Protestant mm -hmm. stuff, church. I'm agnostic, I'm a humanist, but I do believe in the spiritual. And, and I do believe that for me, and I can't speak for anyone else, I believe that I was given a second chance um, to live a full life. Mm. It could have gone, and lots of people I know um, that I grew up with, I know that they have passed away. Um, but for me, it was a second chance. And, and I remember coming out of hospital and going into college, starting Harrow College at the time. And I remember and I can't remember what the name of the book was, but I was reading something and it said, live every day like it's your last. And that's how I live my life. Doesn't matter, you know, I plan ahead and all the rest of that. And, and I, you know, and I hope I don't get all taken away too soon, but I've always been of the opinion, I want to live my life so that when I do go, I'm not going to my graveyard with dreams that I could have lived up to. Mm. And so that was that was a really quite a philosophical person, but that was a a moment where I was like, yeah, I got to do that, and if I can share that out to other people as well, like things happen, what have you, but live every day like it's your and and not and let me be honest, not everybody can do that, right? You don't necessarily have the opportunity to do that, but when you are surrounded by people, family, friends, communities, cultures that allow you to live a full life, live it, absolutely live it. A few months later, after the, the crash, you go around to your best friend's house mm. and you see his mum there. She's very distressed. Mm. What's what's happening there? So, so my accident was the June. Yeah, the June of 1985. The December of 1985. The, it's a... I'm thinking that probably it was a Wednesday or Thursday night. Um, and my mates playing, we're playing, it was Bruce Lee or something like that. We're playing on arcade game. And we, we clocked this game and we're like, all right, good. We need to go to a next game. Like, I'm like, I love you, bro. See you tomorrow. I love you, bro. I'm out. Gone. And this is someone you spend a lot of time a, with. Yeah. Good friend. Really good friend. There was a, a small circle of us in our church. It was me, my best mate, Dwight, Ricardo, Doral, Andrew, Andrew's the young guy, Christopher, Neil, Rawlings. Um, yeah, about eight or nine of us, we were quite tight. We always used to travel together. And Andrew used to live around, Andrew and Doral, the, the brothers, they used to live around the corner for me. So I go around, heading towards the house, and I see his mum. So I'm heading towards the house now. And she's looking really, really distressed, and I'm like, well, what's what's actually happened? Um, Is this the next day after next, you? Next day. Right. 
and she can't speak and she won't speak. And I'm like, what the hell's happened? Um, and then I'm, I, I, I had to, yeah, I had to, I didn't go around to the house then, but I, I had to go and get the bus. Cause I had to, I think I was either heading into school or heading into where I can't remember what it was. But I remember going through the day and obviously back in the day, we didn't have mobiles, we no pages, no nothing. It was like literally landline and that was it. And I go and I meet a couple of friends of mine and I'm going to like, I'm going to go down. I said, um, he's called her sister Ullman. I said, sister Ullman was looking really distressed today. I need to go back around and just see if everything's all right. And they were like, haven't you heard? I heard what? I said, Andrew's dead. I said, what are you talking about? I was with Andrew last night. I said, Andrew had a bike accident, David, on his paper round this morning. And it's difficult to articulate how hollow that moment felt because I'm here going, I'm grateful for the fact that I lived and I'm living my life every moment. I go to the house, I leave from there and, and I rock, to, rock up to the house totally oblivious and I walk in and obviously all our friends and people are there in the house and you could just feel the heaviness and mum's in the back crying. Um, and Doral's older brother's there and you could just see he's lost. Um, absolutely broke me. What do you remember thinking about at that time? I think about me. I think about what happened to me. It literally, if you come from Howard on the Hill, and I'm, I'm trying to describe this best as possible. If you're coming down from the top of Harrow Hill, you've got Harrow School, you walk all the way down, coming to Sunbury Hill. Where I got knocked down was just before this huge playing fields called uh, John Lyon Fields or something like that. But if you go down the road and you just go down the road again towards Sunbury Hill, you pass a big hospital called the Clementine Churchill Hospital. Best at best, if you're on a bike, it's a two minute ride from where I got knocked over. That's where he got knocked over on his bike and he suffered immediate brain damage and died. And that it there are certain there are certain moments in life which really knock the wind out of you and make you value your choices and and recognize that there are only certain things in this life that you can control. You can control the way you respond to people, you can control certain behaviors, but there are things that happen outside of your control and you've got no control over them whatsoever. And you can, all you can do is respond to them or react to them, but you've got no control. And that one really, really broke me. I like, you know, I, I even, I was thinking about, um, um, obviously my daughter's here, she's off, people can't see them off cam, can't see her off camera. But I would have loved both of my daughters to have met Andrew. They would have laughed. If they think my humor is sharp, if they think like how I was, that he was, he was the worst. He was the worst. We, I, I say worst in a bad way, that and and now and now I'm reflecting. I always reflect on the good on the bits that made me laugh. I remember us going through Wembley, and we <laughs> we were running for a bus, and you know what happens, right? You run for a bus, and those will always drive off, and they see you coming, and they're not they're not, not all bus drivers are. I'm just giving you an example, and he we drove off. He goes he goes, Dave, we're running down to go and catch him at the other lights. We ran down, and we were pressing the traffic lights on the way to stop it, so it would go red, so we could get out to the other end. We ran all the way down to the next bus stop and we got there before him. And obviously there were people queuing, so we can't drive past. Mm. And we get onto the bus and he shows his pass and he goes, you're 
God. You can't say that to the bus driver. He can dash you off. And then he just goes upstairs. And we were just, we were absolutely in stitches. There were so many things he used to say that I know that I was sharp, but he was so sharp. And I was like, and then I'd sit and I'd go, God, he was just 14. Do you know what I mean? Like, why? But then I also recollected that there's not much you can do with that. You can't control that. And so a, a lot of, there have been a couple of times where I've done stuff in my life. And I think of Andrew and a couple of people that have passed. And I go, this is not just for me. This is for all of us. Not just for me, this is for all of us. Mm, powerful. Yeah, that's, oh, that's a tough life lesson to, yeah. to get so early. So then from here, mm. there's another incident here, mm. which I'm not entirely sure when it happened, but it was about when you talk someone down from from them harming themselves, which, yeah. which put you in a quite a yeah. dangerous situation. Yeah. I just started out in youth work. Um, about 17, I'm going to say about 17, 18 then. I'd been doing some little tangential stuff, but I'd, I'd been asked to go and um, talk to a young guy who his mum just couldn't handle it and felt that as an older, I was about four years older than him. And I remember going into his house and he was high, high could see you know you could just see somebody who's high mm. and and the mum I could I could sense that there was a real mad tension mm. and he was armed because I think he wanted to get money from his mum and I just said look come and go for a walk we talking about what are you talking about there I said let's go for a walk and we go for a walk there's a there's a there's a in in Harlesden in Stonebridge there's a like a little stream they used to call it the feeder it's like a little river, but it's, when I say river, it had, it had bikes in it and you know, Trolleys. all the crap in there, yeah, all the waste. I remember being by the feeder and this guy was, and I was just like, oh, you know, you're you're good, man, you're good. Why are you telling me you're good, Dave? You're good, man, we're gonna sort this out. I should kill you now. Puts a gun to my head. And I, I'm saying it now and I'm actually reliving the emotion as well. I'm like, Two years ago, I nearly died. Mm. I'm not gonna die here now. Mm. And in my head, I'm like, I'm not dying. I'm just not dying today. Not today. And I've, I was able to talk him down. I said, "Listen, your life is better than this. I'm, I got you. I got you. We're gonna sort this out. Absolutely fine. Don't need to upset your mum. Don't need to upset yourself. I got you. You're cool." It's just you're saying this while he's got the gun to your head. Yeah, he, he had he had it, and I was like, "I got you, bro. I absolutely got you." Absolutely got you. He lowers the gun. Um, and we start on a, we, we start to get a conversation. However the universe conspired or whatever, we have to start to get a conversation. I say to him, just throw the gun away, you don't need that. You're a young man, what do you need a gun for? And he threw the gun in the feeder. And I hugged him and he cried and I hugged him and I hugged him and I hugged him and I, him and I said, I got you, bro, I got you. And And I was able to mentor him for many years. What was it about what you, how you handled that situation that you feel worked? I think you felt my calmness. Mm. One of the things I've learned over the years is people can tell when somebody's agitated, but people can also tell when your frequency and your energy just goes, and it just brings all the energy down mm. in that room. Was I shit myself? Let me be 100% real. Bowels were on weakness, on one, <laughs> right? <laughs> I was one short of filling up my pants, but I ain't gonna lie, do you know what I mean? Um, but there was something that just allowed me to talk down, talk out of that situation. 
and I've to this day I've never asked him if the gun was loaded or not, and I don't want to know. You still speak today? We haven't spoken for many years. Okay, but I I, ne I never want to know. And, and I told him as much as afterwards. I said I never want to know if that gun was loaded. Or not. You don't have to tell me. So just for me, the focus of it was never was not whether or not it was loaded. It was the fact that we were able to build up a friendship from what was a really tense situation. Mm. So I don't fear death. It sounds really weird, but I don't fear death. Um, because I'm living the life that I'm supposed to, and and I will go and I will do things. And I've, I've had honestly, I've had so many. If I tell you the amount of close shaves that I've had in my life, like I was even talking to my daughter on the way here. I remember getting off the train at Euston Square in 2007. I was working at the University of Westminster. I think it was 2007. Well, anyway, when they had the London bombings. And I walked from Euston Square to Baker Street. And the train that I should have been on that takes you to Edgewood was the one that had the bomb on. Wow. I have been driving down the road where I look behind me and go, man, that's a, that's a bit peak, bro. Let me come out of the way. And I've moved out of the way at the outside lane and come in and then look back in my back mirror and see a five car pileup because people are driving too close. I was driving with my missus the other day and we were going down the M25 and just driving down and there was a, a guy in a mini and he was proper lacing it down and the sign said 50 miles an hour. And I didn't say it out loud, but in my head, I'm like, dude, you keep driving like that. You're gonna be in an accident or you're gonna get yourself killed. We come under the bridge from Enfield and we look up the road and we literally see that his car clipped the back of another car, spinning it so it's facing the motorway, hits another car, ricochets, and we're literally by about 15 or so cars behind. But the reason it said 50 is because somebody had was slowing down and you should have slowed down. He had no time to slow down. And I couldn't even stop when people were going out to help, but I drive down and I can see this car, the, the whole airbag has blown out and he's obviously got to deal with a situation that he's messed up two or three other people's lives as a result of going crazy. And I'm like, something in my head said, David, move in. Mm. Stabbings, obviously as a youth worker. Eras that I had been in where five minutes afterwards, things had kicked off. And I don't know, and I don't know, as I said, I don't know what these things are. But I always go, man, I have no idea why it's happened, but I'm incredibly grateful that I'm here. Um, and I'm probably not the only one in this world that has had close shaves. Um, and, you know, it's for me, again, to demonstrate, especially when I'm telling these stories and when I'm speaking to um, young people in schools, I don't do it as much, but I still do do that. Like last Friday, I was in Brixton because the young man who lost his life, I know his father. Um, the, the young guy who got stabbed in Brixton, I know his father. And I, st and I stood up and I was just saying, challenge a lot of the men in that audience around what we could do. I, I, I personally believe this. I, I hope you don't mind me going off on a tangent here. But I believe that, and some people find it a bit controversial, but I believe that the if you want to solve the problem of young black men who get killed in London, it's up to us as older black men to stop it. That's it. Why'd you say that? Because there are sons. There are nephews. There are godchildren. They're our brothers, our cousins, our children. We know them. We know exactly what's needed for a community to build up role models. We know what's needed to be able to make sure, don't go down that route, keep away from this. If you go and you talk on social media, if you go and you, um, you're appearing in a video and you're threatening other people from other, you're putting yourself in the line of fire. 
try not to swear here, right? So just contain me. But if you do that, you have to understand what the consequences are. However, as an adult, I can show you there is another way. You think like, right now I can go out there and I can make two bags selling drugs. That's fine, but that's small talk. I can show you how to make six figures and still live and still have children and still be able to have a brighter future. Mm. And so for me, there's some, there's a responsibility. That doesn't mean, and I think it's a joint up effort, right? That doesn't mean that you don't work in harmony with the police and with the community and with teachers and with all the members of the society. But if a black boy is killing a black boy, for me, it stands to reason if you do the math that it takes a black man to stop that from actually happening. It doesn't stop other parties from being involved. But I'm your dad, I'm your uncle, I'm your brother, I'm your father. And for me, that's important. And again, as I say, I say this because I'm not afraid. I don't fear death. Because the truth is not afraid of being putting out in the light. And there are so many experiences that have happened around me that made me realize you can't not tell your truth. You can't not. I know that's not correct grammar, but work with me. Mm. You have to tell your truth. And even if sometimes it frightens you, you still have to tell it. I'm a very jovial, humorous person. I know I've got into a couple of heavy bits here, but it's a lot of my humor comes from dark places. And it's, it's important that we do recognize that for a lot of the stuff that we have, and I, I, I'm gonna go really ide idealistic now. Tell me, tell me, top of your head, why are none of the wars or the conflicts that we have in this world, why are they not started by women? Tell me how many conflicts that you can think of in the world here. Did one woman cross over Ukraine and say to a Russian girl, listen, I'm gonna box you up and me and you, I'm gonna fight you up, I'm gonna teeth your grain and I'm gonna go out there and I'm gonna run you down. Did one woman from North Sudan look at another a South Sudan woman and said, you know what, I'm gonna punch you in your lips, all right? I'm gonna pull out your weave and we're gonna start a whole fight, all right? All right? Honestly, I'm gonna extend the metaphor. Did a Palestinian woman go over the fence in, in Gaza and say to the Jewish woman, right, do you know what? I'm gonna slap you in the back of your head and we're gonna start an all out war. No, never women. Women will cuss each other and they have their little fight and then, and the next thing you just see, I'm exaggerating here, right? <laughs> next thing you see them, they're doing lipstick together. I'm, I'm, ex I'm exaggerating for effect here, right? But they can deal with that stuff yeah. because there's an, an emotional intelligence and a frequency and a wavelength that they have. None of these big world wars, none of these big conflicts are started by women, none of them. Women have to pick up a lot of the pieces, but never started by women. Mm. There's a clue in that. For me, there's a clue in that there somewhere. And again, I am generalizing, but I think a lot of the problems and stuff that we have in the world, like, okay, let me tell you this, <laughs> one last tangent then, and please we come back to our questions, all right? African and Caribbean people, right? Do not pollute the world with plastics. We don't. Come to our house. Go under our kitchen sinks and you will find all the plastic <laughs> bags that ever came from Tesco's and Sainsbury's are stuck away because we, we like to reuse. Because we come out, and again, I'm exaggerating for full effect, but there are so many solutions to problems that people don't actually really think about because we're so caught up in some of the that we're dealing with that we don't realize there's a problem to it. Sorry, there's a solution to it. But I think that sometimes when you've come to a point where you are close to something that is a matter of life and death mm. or something that is will challenge you, you actually are able to take a step back and go, do you know what, there's actually a solution to this. Mm -hmm. And I believe, and again, it, it, I, I know some of the points I put out may seem extreme, but I think that there are extreme solutions to problems, but we just have to be able to go and do it. You just have to be able to go and face it. I agree, I think a female leader brings something to 
country, yeah. a group of people, a company, yeah. uh, a family that uh, that a man can't. Yeah. And, and, and there are exceptions to the rule, right? Absolutely. Maggie Thatcher went to Falklands, right? So somebody's going to bring that up, okay? Always gonna, <laughs> there's always going to be exceptions to the rule. But generally speaking, yeah. for me, there's something about that nurture. Or even if there is conflict, you get conflict, but it doesn't go from one to 100. Mm. You understand what I mean? Mm. Like two women, two women can kick off in a fight in a, in a club or in a bar. And yeah, it might get a bit peak. Two guys do that. Couple phone calls later, people driving up in their car. Well, you're gonna work. I'm gonna take you down. Calm down, everybody. And I know it sounds really simple, but that's my way of seeing the world. What do those solutions look like? And what have I learned from my life and other people that force us to be able to go? Let's find a solution around this. Yeah, and I guess that's one of the challenges for young people in certain areas is that they get entrenched with the culture of the area. Let's say, yeah. And if that culture is, you know, music is a massive influence on everybody, any kind of music. And if that culture is that, if they want to be a part of that culture, because that's what they see, that's where they see people with the big chains and a mask on and some money. It's, I'd say it's easy, but that's what they, that's what they connect to. And then they, what they live out without thinking. Yeah. Whereas when an elder, mm. it's the elders jobs to be able to, let them show them that that's not the only way. Yeah. But I feel like sometimes a challenge can be the the young people then need to see the kind of archetype that is like far enough from that situation that they can listen to. Like for you, example, you can say, look, this is what I do. I can show you that what you're doing there or that mindset that you've got there can make you a hundred grand mm -hmm. and you can buy that Mercedes, you can buy that BMW, you know, you can have a very good life mm -hmm. because you've brought you at your like external of certain situations. Yeah. And I think that is the, that can be the challenge sometimes for these young people is by the time they may be able to listen or ready to listen, it yeah. might be too late. Yeah. As you see from 14 to 22. Before. So, yeah. yeah. Even before that, it's a real danger area for a, a lot of young people in these inner cities. A hundred percent. And I, and I do think that there is something, what, what I think gets missed. And I think it's intentional. It's not a conspiracy. I just think it's content intentional that a lot of the systems we have in the country aren't do not foster critical thinking or lifelong learning. I'm forever curious. I always want to learn. Some of my mentors are like in their twenties. People are like, "But Dave, you're the older one." I'm like, I'm, "My mentorship is nothing about age. It's about your experience. What is it that you know?" Mm -hmm. um, some of my younger mentors came along because I used to get beat up in gaming so badly. I was like, "I'm not <laughs> taking that shame. Come and show me how to mash up this game and clock <laughs> up the levels. Show me. Show me how to be a bit more dexterous." But it's to your point it's it's about a collective mm. right we're here having a conversation because we are we we've crossed each other's paths and somebody has told and somebody has talked about this and we can feed into that and, and we can have this conversation knowing that we've learnt. all of us will walk away from here having learned something mm. and it's that learning piece that's important mm. for me and look girls grow emotionally quicker than guys and so there's something important around being able to get like if honestly, I actually think that there's um there's a, there's a there's an author in America, I think his name is Richard Reeves, and he talks about boys and men. And he he had this really good idea. He said, you know what, boys shouldn't go into boys should be held back for about two years before they go into high school. Because they're not emotionally equipped as girls to navigate that space. And we're not. We're absolutely not. And that doesn't necessarily mean it's a perfect world. It's just that's the data. That's just how we grow, that's just how we are, how we develop. Um 
But it's the truth is, is it people don't like inconvenience. People don't like inconvenience. They just like the way that things are. If if you really think about it, um, if I was to go and get you to to, to go and search for something online, how many of us are going on here on, and going to Bing? Who the hell uses Bing? <laughs> All right, who's going to Yahoo? We go straight to Google mm. because we've been conditioned because it's convenient. Mm. It is about it's convenient. You want a bit of food? You got you got a Deliveroo or something at, on online rather than thinking right. It's actually cheaper if I actually just go out and buy a whole load of vegetables, cut it all up and cook my actual food. Mm. But because of convenience, people will take the easy route. Mm. And sometimes for me, what you need is a little bit of that inconvenience that will take you out of that zone. And again, as you said, you know, the young people, whether it's in a city, um, uh, young boys with knife, uh, dealing with knife and crime and other youth violence, or group of boys up in Blackpool who have got no guidance, industry has shut down and what have you. And, and for them taking... Um, uh, fentanyl and other kind of that's a way out it's escape mm. so what do we collectively do to go all right do you know what we can shift this we can shift this but if it causes me a bit of inconvenience i don't really know mm. and i and, and for me it's that collective energy that allows us to go right yeah so we're this is a young david now yes the the the, the expert negotiator that mm. saved his own life mm. and saved another person's life yep through negotiation, talking someone down. Mm -hmm. You then spend, you move into accounting and you spend the next like eight years in accountancy. At this time, you're living in Harrow, where you meet your now wife in 1995. That's right. Where did you meet her and how did she really affect your life? Okay, so let let me pace myself when I give this story. When I first met my wife, she was actually dating someone else. Oh, You see, everybody does that because you assume that I went in and stole. That's what I'm saying. I did not steal her. So we actually met. on him. (laughs) (laughs) He's rubbish. Come with me. Um, Yeah, we met in 1995. No, 1988. Sorry. We we got married in 1995. Yeah, we met in 1988 um, in Milton Keynes. We were at a gospel content at the time she was going out with a friend of mine we used to play basketball together um and i mean i thought she was quite quite an interesting character she's originally from the midlands met her and um and then um we were in acton uh a few months later and she had broken up with the guy and we had a really good talk we were going through our a levels at the time we had a really really good conversation uh and i really liked her because i thought she was quite feisty as she still is i think she got worse um, I don't know if she's going to be watching this. Um, but it was, yeah, it was, I, I love the fact that she had a really, really strong spirit about her. And again, we both come from a, a similar religious background so that our values were the same. Mm. Both of us, both of our dads loved youth work and that fed in through to us. Um, so unfortunately, she lost her dad when you know, she was quite young, but there was a real strong sense of the identity. She's half Antiguan. Her dad was from Antigua. Her mum was from Barbados. My mum from Barbados, my dad from Grenada. So there was a strong sense of correlation around Caribbean culture as well and the ways that we connected there. Um, and then, yeah, I, I, I actually, <laughs> I remember when we first started going out, obviously, we, as I said, we had the dial phones. Um, our, first coll- our first collective phone bill, 900 pounds. Whoa! 900 pounds. Um... Because we would call each other all the time, and I and on top of that, I used to write her a letter every day. Hmm. Like I still, she still got letters that I would write 
sealed with a loving kiss at the back. And that's why that's why we ain't getting divorced because I put too much energy and effort into that thing. Man. I wrote <laughs> letters and a nine hundred pound bill. We ain't we ain't breaking up, man. Too much energy being invested into this. But um, yeah, we, so we've been together now for since we were nineteen, so thirty five years, and we've been married for twenty eight. That's lovely. So and then from here, mm-hmm. you get married in nineteen ninety five. Yeah. And six to eight weeks later, you get made redundant from the job that you were at by someone who was at your wedding. <laughs> Tell us a bit around that. And right. how did you bounce back from a situation like that? Do you know what? There's, it's weird because I've always felt that, at the time, I've always felt that I was employable. So I was like, if I lose a job, I'll just go to the temp agency or something else and I'll go and get a job afterwards. And there was a miscommunication. And look, part of it was my blame. I own that. But the way it was done, I was just like, why did you come to my wedding? You came in, you ate my chicken, you ate my cake, you drank my wine, and then you sacked me. All right. It's cold. I swear man. to God. Oh it's my so God. Cold. If I did voodoo right, there would have been one doll that would have just got. <laughs> did you put um, them on the wrong table? Huh? Yeah, did you put them at the back. The table. No, they're on a good table. Got... Oh. <laughs> but you know, I don't know how malice. I think, again, as I said, there's certain things you can control and things, certain things you can't. Mm-hmm. And, and I don't believe in making people live rent free in my head. I'm not doing that because while I'm out there getting pissed about it, you're going out there and having party and employing somebody else and you've replaced it you're not even thinking about me I'm a distant in, in your mind although they did have a fund apparently I learned afterwards just in case I came back and sued them but anyway another story <laughs> um, and so yeah it was it was weird because you just get married and that happens but I was just like oh I'll get another job I'll get another job and I and I one of the things I will say I always I always talk a lot about privilege and I remember this happened in 2020 when George Floyd died, we were having these conversations in organizations and I was explaining to people what privilege is. I was talking about white privilege at the point and, and what it means to be in a dom- white dominant country. If you're not, if you're a minority, seen as a minority, there are certain things that you'll be able to access in life that other people won't. So there will be an assumption, like if I walk down the road, if, if, a, if, a, if a white guy like me walks down the road and a black guy walks down the road and it's dark, there's more chances of somebody walking across the road for me than it's for the white guy. That's just life. I'm not going to go out there and cuss you out. But what privilege allows you to do is it allows you to navigate the world in a certain way. And my privilege is, look, I'm six foot two, right? People ain't messing with a six foot two black guy in a hurry, right? Let me just put that out there that I really could. That's my privilege. So I get to walk in most spaces. My name is David McQueen. I've never had to anglicize my name or change it for anything. Mm. So it allows me to navigate. I, I've been able to hone and develop my voice as a speaker and a communicator. That allows me to travel the world and go around and be able to speak and earn money. That allows me to go into certain spaces, House of Lords, uh, the, the House of Commons. It allows me to work with certain individuals and be in certain businesses. And it, it gives me a, a point of privilege. And that point of privilege has allowed me to take other people in there who would never have been able to go to that space before, who would never have been able to travel. A very quick story if I can say you on that. Um, I was working with a school in South London and it was a leadership program that I had. And we used to go in and work with about 20 old kids and we would go through and we'd see them probably once a month. Um, but we'd have some, it was not just about passing exams, it was about showing them how they could be leaders. Anyway, at the end of the first year, it was a two year program, at the end of the first year, we decided we we're gonna take them to Pearson's in London near the, near, on the Strand. Many of these kids had never left their area in South London. Many of them had never traveled on a tube. They'd only gone on buses, <laughs> yeah. And even when we went to go and get permission, parents were like, I don't want my son or daughter traveling on the tube. And we're like, well, what's gonna happen? You know, they're going with a teacher. They wanted them to go on a school bus. I was like to the teacher, just take them on the train, tube. I, said, I want them to experience the world. Mm. 
Anyway, they come, they rock up to Pearson's, and um, in Pearson's, because it backs onto the Strand, it's on on Charing Cross Road. When you go upstairs and you on the balcony, you then look at the back and you see all the you see the River Thames and you see the London Eye, you see all the buildings, blah blah blah. And I remember we had twenty of them. We went up there. One didn't go because they were afraid of heights. So I said, "Just sit down, relax yourself, have some drink." <laughs> um, but the rest of them, they were up there. And one one of the kids said, "What's that river?" Wow. And like one of the other kids said, you're taking a mic now, aren't you? He goes, no, seriously, what is it? I said, it's a River Thames. He goes, I've never seen it. And I remember going up there and going to them, this is your city. This is your city. You can travel and you can navigate. This is your city. And so flipping it back to the point of privilege that I started off, I realized that when you're in a position to be able to influence and shape other people's lives and just be a small part of it, I've had the privilege of having a lot of people around me telling me that I can do things and I can do really well and I can be excellent and I just need to go out there and do it and I'm still learning. And so because I've had that, I then give it back to other individuals. So even when I lose my job, I'm like, I'll just go and get another job. I'm just counting beans, bro. I'm just, you know, give me Excel. Let me show you how to do certain things. I'll be fine. And it was frustrating and there have been other challenging points in my life, but I've always gone, I'm going to have life's like this, right? Sebs and flows. I'm going to have some low points. And in those low points, emotionally, it's not going to be the best place. But what do I have in place that will allow me to ride through this? I've got my skill. I've got my knowledge. I've got my health. I've got my network. I've got my family. I've got my friends. That's, that's my bag of tricks. I work with that and I look for solutions. And it doesn't mean that I don't get down. It doesn't mean that I haven't had really bad times. But by looking for the solutions, it allows me to then go, right, what can I do? What can I achieve? Where can I go that will allow me to do well, but also to be able to demonstrate to individuals when you're down. And again, don't get me wrong. I know there's anxiety, I know there's depression. I know there's all these circumstances, but where best possible, I like to show people um, or demonstrate to individuals that when you are down, if you come out of the emotional space and look at it through a logical sense and you have a system around you, like I just mentioned just now, my friends, my family, my skill, my wisdom, my health, et cetera, et cetera there are ways and means of being able to get out. So how do I leverage that privilege? How do I leverage that opportunity? Doing this podcast now is an opportunity for me to leverage that because people will see our conversation and go, wow, you did X, somebody held a gun or there was a knife and blah, 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 blah. Oh my goodness, what could I do in my life? that I've never had that extreme, so what could I do to make things slightly different? And for me, it's always about leveraging that privilege. It's always about leveraging it. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. makes perfect sense. So then 2001, Yes, you are running your own IT firm. Yes. What happens in the market that leads to a tragic trail of events for you and your family? 9-11. Mm. 9-11. So I was running, as I said, running an IT company, a support, support company then. Um, 9-11 happens and the whole market just changes. So I was out there charging stupid money to go in and do consultancy, set up your IT system, report it for you and what have you. And then I literally go and I ask people and I went from earning really, really good six-figure money to nothing. Got a mortgage, um, wife's pregnant um, with our second child, um, or what we thought was going to be our second child. Um, got my oldest child there. Um, and it just goes to the wall. So not only have I lost my business, but I can't pay my mortgage, so I've got to sell my house. Um, and then my wife and I, we, we miscarry and we lose our second child. And again, I was really, really, really low. What kind of things were you thinking, doing that? How would you describe your... I wanted to fight baby. everybody. Yeah. I, just, <laughs> I, just wanted to, I just wanted to fight everybody, like, 
why is this happening to me? I just wanted to fight. I don't. I wasn't going up to people and being aggressive, but I, internally that's just how it was. But then I, I I remember sitting down one day and going, well, if I was able to do this before, why can't I do it again? Uh, and it might take longer, but I love my wife, I love my kids, or my my daughter, and it's absolutely fine. And then fortunately, my wife, my, my wife and I, she fell pregnant again, and we had our second child. And and I was like, I, I'm I'm not going to stay in this space and fight just to keep a mortgage, which is cool. And it was our second house. I'm not going to fight to do that. Uh, so we're going to go and rent. We'll sell the house. We'll keep the proceeds. We're going to rent. It's a roof over our head. It's lovely to have a house. It's lovely to own a house. Mm-hmm. But I ain't going to do that at the risk of having anxiety, de- depression, and all that lot. I can go and we can rent in the same way. We'll still be a happy family. We'll live in a tent. My wife doesn't agree with the tent bit, right? <laughs> but we can live in a tent and we'll still be happy. Mm-hmm. We'll still be happy. And so, yeah, it, it, it just, there was a, it was a cascade of events that just happened. But, you know, there were a lot of young people when I was living in Enfield at the time who were really supportive. And I remember there was one young lady in particular who said to me, you know, and I, she repeated back something to me that I said, and she had been through some, she had been doing some self-harming and, and what have you. And I remember one day I was talking to some young kids and saying, look, we're leaving, we're leaving Enfield, we're moving out, we're selling and we're moving up, I still want to keep in touch. I remember holding her holding my hands and she said, Dave, this is something that you said to me and I'm going to repeat it back to you. No matter how dark the tunnel is, there's light at the end of the tunnel. I'm, I'm the, you know, you know, the, you know, those snot you cry, you know, when you cry and it's just snot and your shoulders are just giving it the whole thing. And you're like, you can't, you can't, you're the whole body. Like, and I'm holding this young lady's hand and I'm like, uh, bogeys are like, oh my God. She said, it's all right, it's all right. And I'm like, I look at a mess here. But it was what I needed. It was what I needed. And the beautiful thing, which comes back to what I said before, I think that we are vessels that feed into each other. And imagine I'm now a 30, two-year-old man, 32, 33, and a 15-year-old young lady that I was encouraging to do better uses my same phrases and flips it back on me and changes the game for me. Mm. That's reciprocity. Mm. That's feedback. That's us showing that, that we need each other. So yeah, it was a, it was a bad moment and, and, and it was a dark moment and, and I'll talk about it a bit later, but it took us 19 years to get back onto the property ladder. Wow. 19. Like, loads of people come, oh, your house and your movie. I'm like, bro, it's never yours until you pay for it anyway. Mm. Um, took us 19 years, um, but still happily married, still here, still crazy as a box of frogs. So yeah. And so from here, mm-hmm. we hit 2002. Yeah. Pretty much the year after or so. Yeah. And then you lose someone who's very close to you. Who was that and how did they put a positive impact on your life? I lost more than one person in 2002. Um, again, as I said earlier, what I've resigned myself to, and especially when we, we you know, as I said, we lost our baby and, mm. and there were others as well. I believe that we're all like little balls of light mm-hmm. and and we do that and then and then it kind of like you, you you dim out. And I have to look at it that way because if I don't, I know that I will sink into a vortex. And I'll start asking my questions, myself questions about why did this happen? Who is this? What could I have done better? And all the rest of it. And again, as I said at the beginning, there are certain things that are outside of your control. And I know to to your point about the 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 one person that I lost there, but I'm thinking it was more than one. Um. And you know how do you how you process that is incredibly difficult. You know, one of my close friends lost his son 
not long after that to again you know victim of, of um knife violence and you look at all these things and you realize that there are some cultures who are very explicit about the fact that it's yin and yang it's dark and light it's life and death we're not all going to make it to an older age like i'm 54 my grandfather on my dad's side never made it till 40. Mm. 10 kids i, I, ten I that's kids. a whole year 10 kids Boy. 10 kids I'm like, I'm happy for you. I'm, I'm happy with my two. Like, I'm good. But 10 kids, but died at 40. Never left his island. I'm two generations away from him. I've been to 35 plus countries. My daughters are traveling around the world. I'm here. I've been on national television. I'm a Ted fellow. I've done all this stuff. I've got my own podcast. I've done my stuff. I've been on national TV. Done all these things. Um, and I've lived a thousand lives, literally. So I look at these things and I know how they knock the... They knock the wind out of the, my sails, but the boat's still going in a direction. Mm. My boat is still going in a certain direction. And so I, I always, I've, I'm, I'm quite, don't get me wrong, I grieve, I grieve. But I also go, there are certain things that happen in my life where I've got to recognize I don't have control over it. Let me celebrate what I did have mm. and let me live every day that I have and make the most of, of, of it. So then we move on from here. Mm -hmm. 2004, you start working for yourself and you set up your first company? Or one of, well, you set up a company? I set up a company. This is probably about, if, I, if we go from, if we go from the hustles that I've had, that's probably about company number seven. Okay. Yeah. And this one's Not like, all, you can go on Companies House, not all companies are set up on my name, so you can't find it. <laughs> and this one's entitled Magnificent Minds. Yes. And this is, is this your first step into human development, yes. giving back, assisting yeah, yeah, yeah. people on this their is, This is the first one. And the name was supposed to say, the name itself was Mag. I wanted people to know that you know you you have magnificent minds, so we can make magnificent choices. Whether you're going to change your career, build a business, and that was the first one. And what did you learn in this foray of of working with people to better their lives? The the biggest thing I've learned in personal development is that we're all kids. We're still all kids. Um, some of us are kids with mortgages. Mm -hmm. Some of us are kids with car leases. Mm -hmm. Some are kids with big anxiety, but we're still all kids. Mm -hmm. Because the same things that upset us when we were little kids in school, still the same way we can get triggered. Mm -hmm. The same uh, unresolved issues can get can get deal, dealt with. But at the same time, one of the things that we recognize as adults is that how we help kids to navigate those spaces is about is around conversations, is around giving space to get things wrong, is around the way we, we do stuff. Um, and I also realize as well that... <laughs> People are so petty. Like I've worked with some really big clients and really big, and, I, and I'm, I'm incredibly thankful that those opportunities have, have arisen. But, you know, in Magnificent Minds, two things happened that really escalated. One of them, I got the opportunity to do some work with Richard Branson, and I've always been a mm -hmm. big fan of what he's worked. Went to go and do some work with him. Inundated with calls afterwards. Oh, you work with Richard Branson. Can you hook me up with him? No, I want to. First and foremost, I go for his PA to go and do this stuff. That's not how it works. Mm. But people are fickle because they felt that if there was an association with me, that they could get their way in there. Mm. So I went and I charged them my work and they're like, oh, you know, can we meet Richard? And I send them to a team because it's not, it's not my link mm. to, to do that. And the second one is I, I got to go to TED, to the TED, the big speaking conference. So I'm actually a TED fellow and I got to go there in 2007. And off the back of that, again, international, lots of people were like, oh, and I'll tell you this now. Lots of people got really excited because I went and did that and I met 
you know, quite a number of celebrities and famous people there. Here's my thing. I don't care about the notion of celebrity because that's just somebody projecting something onto someone else. They've still got the same anxieties. They've still got the same problems. Okay, they've got a fatter bank account in most instances, but they're still <laughs> the same kind of issues and they're still human. But I realize that people will be, people will project and people will place emphasis on stuff that's external to them. Oh, I want to be like, you know, people are like, oh my gosh, you met X, that must be so exciting. Like I've got, I've got friends who work in the entertainment industry, who probably met all the main artists. I've literally worked with two billionaires in my life, right? I've got all these individuals around me uh, and in spaces who are in this with the people who would be famous. And I can tell you now, behind closed doors, they're scared as you and me. Hmm. And very often, they're less trusting. Hmm. And so one of the big things for me with Magnificent Minds and with all the stuff I've done since then is again, as I said, we're big children and we're big children always looking to please our mothers because our mothers is our first connection that we have with warmth and with feeding and with security. We cry, we know that mum's gonna come there. Mum will react quicker than dad, all right? And I say this respectfully for people who may not have grown up with their mum. I'm just saying it's a natural instinct across the animal kingdom. But we are kids just looking for, out for appraise, uh, approval from our mum. And we show that in different ways. And I think once we get to understand that we all have these needs that we need to have met, and once we understand what that need for nurturing or searching for mum or searching for dad, I just think it makes life so much easier. The moment you get that and you click it, you can see the behavior patterns. I can see the bully boy in, 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 in the workplace. And I know what happened. You got bullied as well. I can see the really high performing person who will go and work the extra hours. I can see that because you still want to prove. You still want to prove that you're better than, even though you're probably already knowing that you're doing more than someone else. And so, yeah, it's a, it's a fascinating journey on what I call understanding human behavior. And yeah, I, I love the journey. Absolutely love the journey. And I, I, I'm not going to retire. I'm just making, putting it out there. I've got no intentions of retiring. I've seen way too many older people retire and then they just lose their I'm not doing that. I, I just want to go out. I want to go out walking, right? And my work, I basically put, I'm not going to tell you now because I don't want to be accountable to you. Like I have to be accountable to my friend, right? But I've put myself a, de I've put myself a deadline where I no longer work because I have to. Mm. Still do. And pay off my house and all the other stuff, right? Still do. But I put myself a deadline in where I actually work because I want to, because I enjoy that. And I want to, at the moment, I probably do about 80% of my work is paid and 20% is where I give back and I take time mm. calls and blah, blah, blah. And I want to switch that round where I go 10% and that's paid and 90% of the things that I give back. So I will be working well into my old age. Um, but again, that's because I'm just fascinated by human behavior. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fascinated by it. So, um, yeah. So from there, you did TED Global. Mm -hmm. 2014, mm. you launched Q Squared. Yes. A coaching business that works with senior leaders and executives. Yeah. Why did you set this up? Mm -hmm. And what has been your approach in affecting change for these leaders? So Q squared is an extension of Magnificent Minds. Mm. And even between Magnificent Minds and Q squared, I had Magnificent Generation, which is helping young people in schools. The examples that I gave you, the stories of taking young people out. Um, and I wanted to take the same kind of thinking and mindset and bring it to students and get them to think critically, to think about how they learn differently. Um, but then to your point in 2014 set up um, Q squared. And the idea was, is what, so Q squared, the background is, people call me Q or queen 
They call my wife Kim. I said, well, it's two of us, Q, Q squared. I was trying to be all smart. So yeah, it's Q squared, <laughs> all right? It's the two of us and we're bringing this flavor. Both of us are bringing the coaching and the, the way that we, we work. But what I realized is even, in, even in doing that personal development piece, I realized for real impact in the way that things needed to work, you have to be able to demonstrate leadership. And for me, leadership is about being able to have any individual having a vision and idea of being able to take people to a different place or on a journey. Mm. So that could be commercial, you've grown your business. It could be community, helping young people to get to another place. It could be religious where you're working with whatever it is. And for me, leadership is around being able to go, I'm gonna take you to this space, but I want you to do it with your agency. I wanna do it with your skills, your knowledge, your wisdom. However, with some of my experience, I can show you some of the things that you need to avoid, but I'll empower you to be able to get there. Mm -hmm. And that essentially is the essence of Q Squared. I wanna want be able to coach and talk, speak and work with individuals and say, you don't have to ask me any questions. And I realize that you, you see people thrive at their best when you've given them the agency to be the best. Yeah. And they take ownership of that. All you're doing is you're a bit like a catalyst. You're literally saying, this is what I want you to do. I, like I do a lot of work specifically around empowering women in corporate spaces. And not going in there like, oh, you know, I'm some big brother and I'm gonna fix you. No, there are certain things I can tell you. This is how men work. So I'm gonna show you how you can get around that without losing who you are. Because they're gonna try and block you. Hold your boundaries. Don't let them say things to you that you wouldn't want to. Get people who can support you. Create that whole network around you. And it's not easy, but I think it's important for women when I'm working in those senior leadership spaces to know how they can navigate. This is not checkers, it's chess. And I want you to know what those moves are. So where that has taken me is it's allowed me to go around the world working with loads of amazing organizations and just say to people, have a real think about being a leader. Be brave. You're gonna make choices that are not gonna be popular. You're gonna make, you're gonna have lots of victories and you're gonna have individuals who are looking at you going, I wonder if I can do it like that or if I can do it better. So if they're looking at you, what kind of reputation or what kind of example are you leaving? And it is tough, it's tough. You know, at the end of the day, if somebody wants you to change behavior and you're like, I don't wanna mess up my job. I've got my two kids in private school. I've got my golf membership. I'm traveling three times a year to Dubai, Singapore, and New York, right? And, and I've got all these things in place. I don't want to do that. And so I'm gonna react in a certain way if I feel that I'm threatened by individuals. And I'm like, if you're good at what you do, you should, I'm, 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 I, I go on stages across the world and there are lots of these, like, I, I share a stage with people who are earning 120, 150,000 pound a speech. For the pure transparency of this podcast, my, my fee is between seven and a half to 10,000 pounds for an hour, all right? I'm being pure transparency. People are like, what? I go, I'm not charging you for the hour. I'm charging you for 54 years worth of experience. Mm -hmm. And that's seven and a half to 10,000 pounds as well. It can be used in such a way that can increase revenue. It can increase culture. It can reduce the amount of costs that you have. So you're getting a really good return on investment. And I go on a stage where people are earning 120,000, 150,000 pounds for an hour. Michelle Obama earned 750,000 pounds for a speech. Nice. All right. I don't, I don't even want to know what Barack owns, right? Because he speaks four times and he's got a house in Bel Air, right? He's just absolutely he's done. But for me, I say that because when I go into those spaces, I'm saying you're making an investment that other people can replicate on and you can work on and you can build on. And, you know, people say, Dave, you should go to America. You go in America, man. They'll be charging so much money. It's not about the money for me. I know how to make money. It's never, never about the money for me. I can, oh, I can always make money. You can put me somewhere. It's about knowing what the impact is. Don't get me wrong. 
I'd rather cry in a Mercedes than a Nissan Micra. Let's keep it 100%, <laughs> all right? <laughs> but it's not about... Because, look, we're all going to the grave, right? You ain't taking your money with you. Mm. You ain't taking nothing with you. Can I set up a legacy for my children and people who come afterwards? And, and, and I will say this. I never want to be a billionaire. I've got no interest in that. Absolutely none, right? Why? Got no interest in it. Why? Why do, why do I need to have a billion pounds? Money that I will never spend in my lifetime and then spend the last years just trying to give it away. I think there is more power in me going, how much do you need to be able to make your business do really well? And you go to me, Dave, I only need a hundred grand. Or someone goes to me, I need a mill. I go, all right, come, let me sit down and show you how I've done it. Let me show you how this can be done. If there's a million people earning a million pounds, why do I need to be a billionaire? Other than my ego, why do I need to be a billionaire? That's about power. That's about exploitation. And you cannot, and I'll tell you this for a fact, and some people will probably push back, but you cannot be a billionaire without exploiting other resources or people. You can't. You've got to be paying somebody crap wages in order to be a billionaire. Mm. You've got to create a moat or a space around you. And I'm like, I'm not interested. Why do I, why do I need to be? There's so many people out in the world that I'd rather just, I, I remember meeting a young guy in, in Oxford Circus a couple of weeks ago, and he wanted me to donate to a, to a, um, this cause, this youth thing. He's like, I just want 25 pounds. I said, no. So I wanted to think differently. I said, I'm gonna give, I, said, I don't give my details to anybody on the street anyway. So what are you doing? I'm running a clothing company. I said, all right then. I said, you've got half an hour and you can ask me any question that you want. He said, what? I said, you can go out there and beg for 25 pounds or you can get free coaching. I said, and I charge people eight grand for coaching. Starts at eight grand. Getting it for free. Let's go. You good to go? Because are you serious? So have you got pen and paper? Because I've got some here. We sat there and mapped out his whole thing. My guy walked away from there looking about supply chain, understood about P&L, understood about hiring, understood about influencers. I gave him a list of about three or four brands that he could work with, told him who to follow on Instagram, and started to build that. Now, for me, that's value. I could mm. give him 25 pound. What's that going to do? Mm. If I show him how, whether or not he takes it, it's up to him. But being able to show him was more important. So for me, wealth is more about knowledge, about wisdom, about relationships, because that's the thing that will pass on. Money's going to go. And if you hook yourself more to money, uh, if you hook yourself to money, you all you're doing really in more more instances more than than anything else is you're filling a hole. If you can't survive without money, and I, when I say survive, and I'm I'm being res respectful here. If your if your aspirations are just to make money, 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 so you can see it in the bank, I think you're missing out on a lot of experiences. And I know that there are, I know a lot of multimillionaires. Not I know a lot, and I say that respectfully, who are whose children don't talk to them, mm. whose who have been in three or four different divorces, who don't trust people, who go and have big events and stuff like that because they're buying friendship. I'm married, very happily married, all right? I, I've got my two daughters, I love my daughters and got really good relationships with them. I probably have about five or six, seven other adopted children as I come who just literally call me dad and I have to explain to people they're not my actual children, right? So don't get it twisted. <laughs> yeah. But I have that relationship with them, I have friends. And, and that for me is fulfilling absolutely fulfilling so the concept of having three commas just behind my name just to make it feel good not interested i'd rather show other people how to put food on their table what's the most from all the people you've you've spoken to coached helped mentored what's the most common thing that people are doing to stop them generating the the money that they want to get ego ego that's what it is I would, I would have said to you before, focus. Because mm. it is about what, do, what are those key things I need to focus on? I am always in the, I'm a big believer of do one thing right and then build on it from there. 
So I know what my coaching model is. I've got that on a lot now. Mm-hmm. I know what my speaking is. I know how I can do my speaking. I've got that on a lot. Those are two income streams. And I say two income streams because even within speaking, I've got 14 different ways that you can make income from speaking. All right. I'll give you something. I'll give it for free here. Right? You can do <laughs> keynotes. You can do webinars. You can do podcasting um, and get sponsored. You can do podcasting internally. You can do masterclasses. You can do workshops. You can do retreats. You can do hosting. You can do facilitation. You can do ballrooms. There's so many things that you can do by just using your voice. You can do presenting on TV. You can do presenting on radio. All right. There are so many things that you can do. I just gave away 12, 12 right? Yeah. Things that you yeah. think. I'm waiting that, for the next two. All right. You're waiting for the next two. <laughs> That's to pay me for those two, right? Okay. Well, the fact is, is that there are all those things that you can do by just speaking. But most people think, oh, I just got to stand up on a stage and get paid to do it. What if you're introvert and you don't want to leave your house? There are so many things, voiceovers, right? I'm going to get one more for you, right? There's still, there's, there's things that you can do that allow you to expand, but people only think about speaking in what, oh, I'm going to go and do a TED talk and then I'm going to get paid. You don't have to leave your house. You don't have to leave your house at all. Adverts. Um, so at the end of the day, right, you can, there are, th- there are things that you can do by just about thinking about it differently. But for me, it's about ego. Because mm. if your ego gets in the way, it's the one that not only bigs you up, but it also will tear you down as well. And everybody's got an ego, but I'm just saying, how big you want it to be and does it get in the way of your success? Does it stop you from doing things the way that you want to do? And, and I find that when I've, I've, I've coached people and I've moved them from simple basic, like I, I know people that have been, never gone past 30 grand, never went past 30 grand. I said, what is it that you really do? And they've given me a product, show me it and what have you, and I've gone, all right. So let's say you go in and you go in and you deliver that as a consultancy piece. Online courses, 15. Hey. All right, if you go in and you deliver, you go and deliver a piece. What happens if you're ill? Who gets to deliver it for you? Show me what your signature product is. Because all this is at the moment is depending on you. We sit down, we work out what the signature pro- the, the product is. This is how they influence the way that a business will buy their service and the people that will work with it. I go, okay, how can we create a model around that so it isn't just dependent on you, you can get two or three other people to do that. How do we get individuals to buy your service for a year to subscribe? And how do we get other individuals to come in and be trained on what it is you do? And then they deliver it on your behalf and you get a margin, you get a slice on top of that. And then how can you go and speak about it? Or how can you run a masterclass that somebody then anywhere in the world can go and subscribe to? They're like, Dave, you're taking the mic. I said, fine. Wasn't make, was making 30,000. When we last spoke, she was making 440,000 a year. Mm-hmm. Same product. Yeah, same product, but the ego is, and we really doubled down. And I said, put that out of the way because you, oh, I need to be there. People need to see me. You know, yeah. calm yourself down mm. and think about the signature piece. And I mean, I know it's not a business, I know it's not a business podcast, but there's there's one thing I learned. There are two books that really stick out to me. One is the E Myth. Um, I can't remember the name of the guy, and the other one is um, Built to Sell by John Marillow. I'm somebody will remember it. But the one thing I liked about the E Myth is that if you build a business, it says create systems, be like McDonald's. Let the system run without you being there. Mm, okay, yeah. this is beautiful and what have you, but you know what you guys have here. But the bigger thing about if you want to see that media, how many other people could you have? What does it look like when people subscribe to this? What does it look like when you think about the people who are working with you? If you nurture their careers and they get onto the same level, but they're part of your network, that's huge. That expands. Absolutely brilliant. System. You've got a system in place. The way you book, the way you get people, the way you contacted my team so I could be here, the way we uh, 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 synchronize our diaries, which was bloody hard work, but the way we <laughs> synchronize our diaries to be here, that's a system. Hmm. But then the second bit for me, is, and this is a bit about John Warrillow, he goes, you have to build your business at, at any point in time. If you could sell it, could people take it? 
So what's your IP? If somebody came in and said, this, you've got a brilliant, and I'm going to call you a media company, right? So I'm going to call you, this, big up your heads, right? How do you sell this media company? What's the IP that you have? That if somebody was to come in there and go, do you know what? I'm going to give you a milli for this because I really like. What would you be able to give to them as IP that is distinct from other people? Mm. What's different? And again, I, I say this and I, and I hope in, I hope that I don't sound pedantic. I hope I don't sound like I'm belittling anybody in any way. But success leaves clues. And one of the things I love about Q Squared is being able to talk through my medium, through my the channel, whether I'm saying it directly myself or people using my product and speaking on my behalf to go, do you know what? There's solutions. Success leaves clues just know what the systems are. We don't need to be motivated. Motivation is great. Lovely way. What happens when you're not motivated? And you still got to pay bills. Mother trucker, you need to find a system, right? Because it's not about just being motivated. You have to find a way that will. And, and, and to be fair, it's like relationships. I said 28 years of marriage. I'm telling you now, we've had to have chats. We've had to have chats because I'm like, boy, I can't deal with this. And she's like, I don't like you very much. I'm, you're going to wake up one morning and you may not be alive because you're not going to wake up. I'm like, all right, okay, that's a bit deep. We need to talk here. But it's a system. And our system is what do we put into our relationship to make it work? What do we do even though we don't feel motivated to do it? Mm. Like we had to be, one of the things we decided out in, in our marriage is that we put ourselves before our children. There's a lot of people that can't handle that. Our marriage has got to be strong. We have to show what it looks like to have a sustainable friendship, to have sustainable love, so we can demonstrate to our kids what that looks like. You don't come before me, it's different love, but you won't come before us because you're gonna, my eldest, is, she, she lives elsewhere, she lives elsewhere now. My youngest is in, in another place. Do I want the two of us to be in that house just looking at each other like, who the hell are you? Mm. And what's happened after 20 odd years? Mm. So we invested in our relationship and that was the primary one because we had that relationship before our kids came up along and now our kids are adults because they're not kids anymore. We have to make sure that that thing is still the same. Well, on a practical level, what does it mean to put your marriage in, in front of your kids? Or as a put our marriage first. Yeah. So it's like the, the best way I can say, it, I'm, I'm going to give a metaphor first and then I'll come back to the practical way. Um, I cannot be there for you unless I'm there for myself. So in order to be able to serve you properly, I need to eat, drink, exercise, sleep, and look after myself so that when I'm serving you and when I'm, I've, I've served myself first. If I'm irrational, if I'm angry, if I'm hungry, if I'm thirsty, if I'm not in, good, in, in a good shape, I can't serve you properly. Because my worry and your worry will be like, oh, come on, God, what's wrong with Dave? Is he okay? So I use that metaphor to say the same with, the, with our marriage. Our marriage is about, okay, what do we do collectively to make sure that we are provided for ourselves a loving relationship? What does that look like? First, we're friends, then we're husband and wife, all right? So what do we do to maintain that friendship? It's cool. And then what does it look like when we're husband and wife? And that means things like we flirt. Like I'll, my, my kids will tell you, I pinch my wife's bottom in public. I kiss her up nicely in the street. I don't care PDA, I don't care people like that. I do that. Like we go out and we dance together. Because for us, that's a connection that we have as a husband and wife. We work together as well, which is cool, all right? But I'm happy not working together because for me, the marriage thing is important. And what we do by demonstrating that marriage first is we say to our kids, our, our, our kids could never, they try to play games on us. Like, mum, dad said I can go and take the thing outside. She'll go, all right then, let me go and ask dad. No, 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 I don't think that's what you said. Don't lie, because <laughs> we will check out on each other because we're a team. And we work together as to how we raise our children. And we work together as to how we raise uh, or react to our in-laws. 
we raise our, our, our the, the way we work together is how we react with our friends because we are a unit here and so the being able to do that first then allows us to put the energy into raising our children because we're aligned there's no way they can play us off they try it but there's no way they're going to actually go and play us off because we have been deliberate in thinking about how is it we're going to be able to support each other and sustain what was going to be a healthy loving relationship what comes out of that then is our parenting and our parenting is different we don't love our children less we just love our children different and what it means by prioritizing us is when our, our children are no longer children they're adults now and so they have to make their own choices but we still have to be together we still have to live together so the investment we made into our marriage like we we, we bugging off to, to morocco we used to go with them on holiday we bugging off to morocco in august for our holiday oh where are you going business we're going on holiday we went to Barbados earlier in the year and uh, my wife had injured her foot so we're like we're going premium and they're like yeah we're going upper class you no, no we're going upper class not premium we're going upper class we're going with a with a bed lie right mm. you lot are sitting in premium and I'm gonna not gonna lie I wobbled a bit I was like oh babe because we sleep because we work damn hard get them in premium we're gonna <laughs> go up there we're gonna fly out the front and I needed that that's what I mean by marriage. I needed that because I will get a little bit weak. Oh my God, my girls, I love my girls so much. Shut your mouth and come, let's go and lie down in upper class because <laughs> we were bloody hard to get here. Let them sit in premium. If they want to get to upper class, let them afford it for, afford it for mm, themselves. That's it. And so it's all those lessons around boundaries. It's all those lessons around, we're not afraid to get upset with each other in front of them because we're teaching our kids conflict. We won't scream, shout and throw each other. We won't fight, but we will get upset but we're also mindful that how we manage that conflict or manage that anger has a massive effect on how they will do it as well or how they see the world or the expectations that they get from a relationship. Mm. So that's what I mean. That's that practical, let's do us first. Let's get that sorted. Let's fill our cup so that when the cup overflows or when we need to pour into another cup, our cup's already full. Mm. Great sense? advice. Yeah, it does. Definitely. I mean, you've shared some great strategies with us there. And um, would I be right saying that these are the elements that you that would be reflected in the work that you do with the Black Founders Hub, helping people go from where they are to over 100K? Yes. Yeah, no, 100%. So I'll give you a bit of backstory behind the, the Black Founders Hub as well. In 2020, um, a couple of us, we did a bit of research and we found out that the average revenue for a lot of black startup founders was £33,000 for the year. And I'm like, if that's the revenue you're getting, go and get a job. Mm. because mm. the amount of effort and energy you put in to do that that doesn't make and there's a look there's a whole host of reasons access to finance understanding about business seeing role models or what have you and having built six figure plus businesses myself I was like what are the simple things that I can teach around mindset around the models around the way that you can do that and what we did is we, what we still do we have a mastermind where we, we get together a group of individuals and we literally go talk to me about your marketing talk to me about your sales talk to me about your methods and all the rest of it talk to me about your competition and, and one of the things that I think is a disservice around business is that many people try to make out it's a lot more sexier than it actually is. And I think the, there's more mundane stuff you have to do in running a business than there is in the sexy. The sexy bit is when you go out and you do the awards or you go to this event or you get to go to these special places or you know, you know there are customers who give you some really good feedback. But a lot of it is mundane. It's fair to, you got, you've got to be able to do it. Um, and so it's just about navigating in between those spaces and understanding what's important, what's relative. Do I set myself sales targets? What do I do about my marketing? How do I get staff? All that kind of stuff. Um, but also recognizing that for a lot of people of African and Caribbean heritage in the UK, there are some real colonial hangups as to what business actually looks like. 
I, as I said, I go to the Caribbean and I go to Barbados and lots of people would prefer to work for the government rather than run their own business. Mm. And I look at all the major hotels and I look at a lot of the businesses and they are not run by locals. And um, even externally, when I went there, I saw some, it was African-Americans that were running some stuff and not local Bajans. And so I realized there is a bit of a hangover and a bit of a colonial, uh, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm unapologetic about being able to call it Black Founders Hub as well. Because um, I remember somebody challenged me. They go, like, why don't you do this? Why are you making it about color? Have you? I'm like, listen, I've raised 150 million pounds in funding. And only one of those companies was a black guy. All right? One little German black guy. Everybody else was there. So all my white friends got good money. So calm down, eat your cornflakes, and everybody just chill for a minute. <laughs> but in, in the same way, when I, I realized that there are going to be certain identities that need help in a certain way. W women struggle to get funding, like really badly struggle to get funding. And I don't see why a really, really good woman entrepreneur needs to have a man on her board mm. in order to have legitimacy. That's But there's something around within the community knowing that I've been, my, none of my parents are entrepreneurial. Mm. Um, my older brother kind of is, my younger brother isn't, so I'm, it's me. So I, and, and sometimes I feel a little bit of survivor's guilt. Like, how am I able to build this stuff? And then I realized, but there are some simple rules behind it. And so I will then lean back into the community or whatever communities I have, specific communities, and go, look, I understand some of the challenges and the hangups you have, which are cultural. But I want you to take that cultural bit and I want you to, I want to recognize what some of those are. But I also want you to go, that should not determine what your success looks like. So let me take your signature product, let me take your service. And Black Founders Hub primarily does with service companies, accountants, graphic designers, photographers, whoever's charging a service fee. We go, what is that IP? What's that product that you need to develop? And then how can we help you to be able to develop it? And, and so, yeah, we've been running three years now. Um, and, and I love the work that we do there because it still allows me to demonstrate leadership. It still allows me to demonstrate how individuals who have not always had access to finance or knowledge or wisdom around how they can build a business and create wealth and be sustainable. Mm -hmm. Being able to do my small part to it, yeah, I'm, I'm very happy with that. You help a lot of executives you know, improve their businesses, their lives. You you help young people and everyone in between. What are you working on for yourself at the moment in terms of your personal development? Mm. What's what's the thing that you're looking to do to to improve? So the big thing for me at the moment is just uh, is brotherhood. I I realise that for my own trust issues that I've had with some issues uh, uh, historically. That and, and especially like I'm no longer in a church community or what have you. I have kind of like created communities of men that we talk and we catch up about business or sports and what have you. But now I want to be one where I want to be in ones where I'm not driving it. Because very often I am. I'll go, look, I've got 12 guys out here, man. We're, we're, come on, let's go go and eat some food or let's go somewhere else. And I end up driving that because I'm a community builder. That's what I do. Mm -hmm. But now I've been working on being in spaces where I don't have to be the one driving it. Mm. And so I've been in touch with a couple of, like one of the things I've started doing now is around somatic breathing, deep breathing. Um, and so I have therapy every Wednesday, every Wednesday between four and five without, I don't care who you are. Okay, let me let me explain that differently. Next week I'm in New York, so I gave him advance notice, right? Next week I'm in New York. And then the week after I'm doing a gig for a client, but generally speaking, nine times out of 10, that four till five on a Wednesday is my sacred time. That's my therapist. And I go there not to be fixed, but I go there to have a conversation with another man that will allow me to be free to speak and not be judged and not to 
couch it in emotion. I speak mm. freely. Mm. Those probably knows everything about me. It is what it is. Um, but the other part of it, the other part of that for me is around somatic therapy because there's a mind and a body thing. And somatic is when you're kind of like really thinking about your lymph, thinking about the your motion, your breathing, and how you breathe and how you allow your body to deal with stress and anxiety and all the rest of it. And and I've done it a couple of times and I've got a couple of somatic therapists who are, they've done some stuff and I'm like, I'm in tears. Like, I'm just like, you're being in that space, you're just crying. But my thing is, is I want to be surrounded by men who aren't afraid to cry, who are in a space where we breathe and we nurture together, who are in a, in a, in a space where we've got spiritual alignment as well as all the other stuff. And I just don't have to lead it. Mm. Um, and so that's a big part of, of, of my next level of growth. But plus I'm all, I'm always reading. I'm, I'm I read about stoicism. I've been reading big time about yoga. I read about Maori and um, First Nation Aboriginal cultures in in, um, in Australia and New Zealand. And I'm reading all this stuff because I think there's not one way of seeing the world. Mm. And there's so many things that we can learn from each other. I've, I've done a little bit, God, if my mom was watching, it's gonna have a heart attack. I've done a little bit of work on Voodoo as well and reading a little bit of Voodoo and what have you. And it's fascinating because it's just all world differences. Um, and I want one thing I do, I have to do within the next year, I'm saying it now because I want to commit to it and I've said it now in public. I've got to go on, I can never pronounce it right. I'm going to say Vasapiana, but I'm going to get it wrong. But it's basically Vipisna. Vipisna. Is it Vipisna? The Vipisna. Silent retreat. Yeah, yeah, silent yeah. retreat. Yeah. I ain't doing the 10 days. Okay. I'm not doing the 10 days, bruv. I'm not able for that madness. You'll see me walking down the middle of bloody Askew Road with my head out and I'll have a beard down there because I'll be gone. <laughs> three days. I'm going to do three days. Mm -hmm. I'll push it out most to five, but I'll do three days just to be silent. Silent for three days. I mean, my wife will love it. She'd like, shut up for 10 days. She'd be loving that. But just to go away and do that for three days and reboot, I have to do that within the year. Mm. I have to do that within the year. Start taking the cold, doing the cold shower things as well. So you have the, the going in the shower, you have a little bit of mild, and then you put it on proper cold. Everything shrivels. I'm just saying that because the guys know. All right, everything <laughs> shrivels, right? And you just, oh my God, but it wakes you up. Yeah. And your whole nervous system is amazing. Um, a little bit of intermittent fasting. So a lot of stuff that's just around maintaining my mental and physical. I'm a 54-year-old man. So, you know, I, I want to make sure that those things that, to be honest with you, in, I didn't really know about or really focus on. I want to double down on that, but I want to do that in the company of other men. Mm, I love that. And just on the, on the cold showers as well, like, I think from a psychological aspect if you're especially if you're doing it in the morning mm, yes there are a lot of things that if someone said okay you could write that thing that you can't be bothered to write or jump in a cold shower all right i'll write the, write the thing yeah, yeah so when you do that cold shower you don't want to do it you don't want to do it yeah, yeah, yeah. when you do that in the first thing in the morning yeah then you're like the rest of the day's gonna be easy honestly Honestly, I have to, but I have to, I can't, some people go straight in. I ain't doing that, man. Sorry, black men ain't built that way. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm just putting that out there. It's all racial. We ain't built that way, bro. We're not. But I literally have to start at lukewarm yeah. and then I turn it round. I've, the most I've done at the moment is two minutes. Okay. Just stayed in there, just proper, like the proper cold. Like, mm, yeah. Oh, your body like that. And you're like, oh, yeah. you're like in there. But then you come out of there and you're like, wow, I'm invigorated. And again, as you said, you're like, nothing. Nothing, if I've done that, nothing, exactly. nothing can um, affect me. So all those things around the mental and the physical, I want to, I want to make sure that I look after this as much as I can for the however long I have it.
Mm. That's where my personal development's going at the moment. Mm. Love that. Great advice. Good. Thanks. Good evening. I think well, we're there. You're done. That's, oh, hey. that's your life oh, story. No, I, I totally enjoy that. Thank you. Thank you for crit. Thank you for crit. Let me honor you. I honor you both. Honor you all for creating this space. Um, I'm not going to talk about the other guests. I'm talking about for me. Um, because you probably noticed from my body language that some of the tough moments I went back into, I went back into my body in there. And, and I don't just talk about it, I literally physically go into that space. But I can easily just go off and do a little joke and make nothing of it. But I felt comfortable enough to sit in that discomfort in having that conversation with you because I felt safe. And for you too as well, just make sure you know. But you created the, obviously, the environment. Yeah. So I just want to honor you in, in that. Appreciate it. Yeah, uh, appreciate it's, it. It's, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. And um, yeah, just, uh, as I said, I just, in my head, I'm not gonna lie, initially I was like, Jesus Christ, like, dude, I was sitting up in bloody shit. We just talked, just like a coffee shop conversation. Yeah. And I was like, why did I have that? You know what it is? Because I haven't got the patience to sit down and watch Joe Rogan or whatever. There's that force <laughs> in my head, all right? But yeah, I, I honor you both for this. I honor you all for this. And it's it's nice because, to my last point that I made, sorry, around the, the, the men's group, very often, because I'm older than other people, I end up going into a room where I am the voice of wisdom. I am the one that people look up to. I am the one that people will look to the, the answer. But I sat here just going, you guys are just, you guys have got this and you're just gonna ask me all the questions and I just need to listen and just, and then respond to you. And that's a beautiful thing, because I don't feel tense. I don't feel overwhelmed. I feel chilled. I gotta wake myself up because I gotta drop my daughter home, right? But I, otherwise that, I just feel so chilled. So thank you very much. Thank you. Appreciate and it. I wish you nothing but success for this. Nothing but success for whatever you do with your business and how you are able to take it to the next level. I honor Dino for introducing me to you guys as well. Shout out Dino. Shout out mm -hmm. Dino. Um, and yeah, you know, in, in the, I very often people say, you know, how can I help? But I want to be specific in the way that I'd like to help you. And my specific thing is if, in my network, there are people that you need to be sitting in this couch and you feel, Dave, there's somebody that I need or this come across my mind, let me know that. From a personal point of view, if there's something that you have around the business and you just wanna be able to bounce off some stuff and you go, right, come here, you old head, let's go and just bounce this stuff. Let's do that, let's have that conversation. If there are ways and means other than my own episode where I can promote to my network and allow people to know what that's doing, that's my specific offer that I, I give to, to you. Um, appreciate and, it thank, and, you. thank you and for you two as well if you need I know it sounds like this weird guy but for the two of you as well if you need if there was a moment where you felt you just needed to bounce off and ask a question I do this thing where I go what are the three most pressing questions on your mind right now about your life or your career that you'd really need honest feedback that you don't think people around you would give you you take that they've both got my email you take that stuff you email me and I will respond to you in 48 hours that's my gift to you Okay. You, you can throw it in the bin and dash it. Oh, no waste man's little email, but whatever, it's there. And so it's your choice to use it. And just right? for the listeners watch, and the viewers, that he's speaking to Aurelia and Stuart, yes. amazing crew members. Yes. yes. Yeah, members big up the crew. <laughs> yeah, been, been with us all, all season, Aurelia, for two seasons. And we've heard a mighty lot of stories. Good. So I did have one more question for yes. you before I go into your final okay. um, poem. If 
you could bring all of the leaders that you know together into one room around one table, what do you think the most important challenge to discuss should be? Be kind to yourself and be kind to those who you lead. Everything else falls from that. Mm. People get burnt out, stressed out, create stories in their mind, create narratives that don't exist. Be kind to yourself, look after you, understand what it means to be for you and those people who depend on you, and then be kind to those who you lead. All the other stuff, the strategy, the leadership skills, well, anyone can learn that. But the, the thing that, uh, if I got everybody in the room first, is, is, is love on yourself, and love on those people who you lead. And again, when I say love, I'll contextualize it. It's a self-love. It's a familiar love. Not, not, I don't want people like the leaders going out there telling them, I said, love up on your staff, right? I don't, I don't want them <laughs> and me getting sued, right? cases. Right, yes, <laughs> all right? Because we know that. I don't want to catch cases on, on my behalf. But yeah, loving on yourself and understanding what it means to thrive and be who you are and, and be curious about what that looks like and you know, doing your best. And then love on the people who you, you lead. Show them love. Don't, 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 you don't have to be an ignorant you don't have to be a you don't have to be a in order to be a leader you just don't you can be nice you can be decent you don't have to be perfect nobody's perfect well apart from me but you know no one no one is actually perfect it, it really is about just being able to just just enjoy and be compassionate well final i'm going to share some final words of like a summary of what i think people can learn from your story what i learned from from your story and from you i think people can can see that You've got this great attitude about life, about about things and experiences that is so it's positive, but it's grounded and you use humor in a brilliant way to just bring a bring rid of lightness to the to the world, mm -hmm. you know, to yourself, to those around you, to yeah, memories and experiences and, and look at the positive. And I think that's incredibly valuable and something people can learn from your character of just always thinking, how can I bring light to this situation? Mm -hmm. How can I bring light to somebody? How can I bring light to myself, my wife, my kids? Mm -hmm. And everything seems really grounded in that. And I think that's such a brilliant way of, of life, way of being. And um, that's one thing that really, really took from your, your story and, and you. Thank you, I much appreciate it, thank Thanks. you. Final craft of the yes. poem that Ash has written while we've been talking. Okay, it's good. Inspired by, by our conversation today. Finding a sense of freedom in nature early, sparking a sense of true connection. The value of trust, negotiation and investing, of course, in proper protection. Listening to that voice inside, look side to side, your inner satellite will show your true navigation. That same inner compass will show you what's right for you if you ever encounter truth-filled hesitation. Finding a fascination in human behaviour, there seems no end to David's passion. With misuse of power, exploitation and deceit, not things part of this gentleman's fashion. Ego can be your arch enemy of your life path and your progression. So as you're building, build for the future and you will see the fruits of your labour continue in succession. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Appreciate you all. Thank you. Thank Namaste. you. Namaste. Bona. Appreciate you. Love you. Love on you. Bless you. Thank you. Do you mind clapping like that for us? Sorry. <laughs> That's not going to work. Hey. There we go. That's proper. It's a clip. It's a clip, not a clap. <laughs>